But first, we're taking you to an 18th century feast. Historian Kelly Fanto Dietz writes about foodways on Virginia plantations. She says that feasting was the major form of entertainment for wealthy planters. You would find multiple tablecloths laid out. You would have several courses of food. You would have puddings. You'd have roasted meats. You'd have fruit from all over the place. You'd have, I mean, the the spread was all about showing off your wealth. There was more food than anyone could have ever eaten at these things. Guests would sit down to eat in the mid-afternoon after the men spent several hours drinking in the parlor. Dietz says alcohol was every bit as important as the food. Oh, my goodness. They had rum from the Caribbean. They had tons of brandies. They had wines that were made on grounds, made out of blackberry. And and so you'd get pretty drunk before dinner. Now, of course, all of this bounty, from the imported rum to the meats and the puddings served at dinner, was produced, cooked, and served by enslaved people. Our co-host Ed Ayers sat down with Kelly Fanto Dietz to talk about these plantation feasts and the enslaved people who prepared them. They start us off in the dining room with the guests. The whole idea is you go and you feast, and feasting was central to Southern hospitality. If you think about the pineapple that you see all yeah, over yeah. Virginia, right? Most people don't even realize what that means. If you were wealthy enough to have a pineapple, that meant that you had ships probably going to the Caribbean to pick up your rum, to pick up some exotic fruit, to bring it back. And then if you were hospitable enough, you would offer that pineapple to your guests. It does seem strange that you see these wooden pineapples all across the South. They seem to be big in South Carolina as well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, But all that means is we're so freaking rich, we have pineapples. Yeah, and we're going to let you eat them. Okay. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. That's the whole thing, right? It's one thing to feast by yourself. It's another to show off your wealth and your your willingness to feast with your guests. And you think about this all about um, overexerting yourself on eating as much as you possibly can. That is exactly what they were doing on these plantations. So let's talk about that kitchen. I can't imagine what that must have been like producing this cornucopia of endless food. Can you describe this kitchen for us? Absolutely. So these the kitchens that I that I look at in my work are the ones that are on the larger plantations. Right. So the larger plantations are also the ones that are going to be doing this kind of entertaining, the mm-hmm. balls and all of that. Cooking in one of these plantations was an incredibly challenging task. And if you think about it in terms of menus that were offered, one of the dishes that Virginians ate constantly and anyone by the water ate constantly was versions of oysters. So oyster stew, um, fried oysters, Mm -hmm. just raw oysters, barbecued oysters, any way you could eat an oyster, Virginians were doing this. And you can see this in the records. So imagine one of the dishes that you're having at supper is oyster stew. Mm -hmm. This is one dish of maybe 10 that are on the table of one of the three courses or four if you're really getting fancy. Now, if anyone has ever shucked an oyster, they know how hard it is to get those little things open. So if a recipe calls for 100 oysters, that's only one bit of labor for one dish that probably took the cook an hour or more to get through. Right. And so it was a constant job to labor in those kitchens. And it was also 24 hours a day. Yeah, your work helped me realize just how hard all this cooking was because it's also fire building, pot lifting, animal skinning, all these different kinds of things. It sounded remarkably labor intensive and also maybe even 
dangerous? Absolutely. And if you think about the ways in which you have to cook on an open hearth and the fact that they were cooking the majority of every day, and I guarantee they were exhausted most of the time that they were cooking. And wearing a long dress. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Literally in the fire. You know, enslaved cooks died from burns more than anything. And one of the things that enslaved cooks had to do was stick their arm in the oven to see how hot it was. And if it was hot enough to bake any baked goods, you would have to pull it out immediately. It only takes one or two seconds of leaving it in there too long to scald yourself in that situation, as well as, you know, the dull knives they had to use. I mean, cutting yourself with a dull knife is not something that anyone looks forward to. And I guarantee that the crude utensils that they had during this period did no favors to people's body parts. So we have an embarrassment of too much food, really, when the company comes to the big house. What would daily life have been like for the enslaved people? I'm guessing that they didn't have to worry about having too many leftovers. Actually, a lot of the enslaved people were underfed, you know, routinely for generations. This is something that plagued most enslaved populations. They did not have enough food, and this was an intentional way to keep them busy, you know, not running away. You would be eating, basically, you would get your ration from the overseer. It would be, you know, if you're up in Virginia, it would be a little bit of cornmeal and a piece of fat back. And then you basically had to hunt and create your meals with supplemental food. So enslaved folks had to grow their own gardens. And this is on top of working for their enslavers for 12 hours a day. They would come back to the quarter. They would have to tend to their own gardens. They would have to go hunt possums or raccoons or squirrels or anything they could get their hands on. And this is also something that you see in the tradition of gumbo is having one pot in the quarter. So if each person only had a little bit of something by themselves, that's not a lot. But when you have communal eating, when you're able to combine all of the fat back and all of the cornmeal, and then you get somebody's possum and you get somebody's squirrel and you have some oysters to throw into that pot, it becomes something that is is essential for not only uh, eating and being full, but having a sense of community in these quarters as well. So are there dangers as we imagine this bounty upstairs and this sort of creativity downstairs as we think about culinary history? Are there risks in doing this? Absolutely. I think it's really important to understand that the romance of food is tightly tethered to the pain of slavery, that every single thing that these people were eating came from the exploitation of enslaved African and African-descendant people. And so you cannot have a plantation feast without having thousands of enslaved Africans making sure that you ate whatever you wanted to if you were a free person. So do we know the names and identities of some of these cooks who are making these wonderful feasts? George Washington's enslaved chef, I think, is really remarkable, and I'll tell you why. He was enslaved by George Washington at the age of 16 years old at Mount Vernon. Um, He married a seamstress. He had children there. When Washington moved to Philadelphia to run this new nation, he brought with him Chef Hercules. Now, Hercules made a splash in Philadelphia. He met a lot of people. He was very well respected. There's rumors that he, or there's records of him dressing up in this, you know, extravagant outfit. He had buckled shoes. He had hat. He had a gold cane. Mm. And he would walk down Main Street in Philadelphia and people would bow to him. His kitchen was so well known that people bought leftovers out of the back doors up to $200 a year wow. to eat his food, right? Um, I would argue back that- Back to $200 would buy you a lot, a lot of That's a lot of money, right? Yeah, right. So, um, Um, I would argue that Chef Hercules is America's first celebrity chef, hands down. I can't think of anybody during that period that was more well-known than him. 
So you seem to know a lot about this cooking stuff. How did you get interested in this? So it was a combination of things. I was a professional cook for 10 years in California before I decided to be a historian or go dig in the dirt and be an archaeologist. And so I got into it through actually reading the 18th century Virginia Gazette when I was in graduate school, trying to figure out what exactly I wanted to write my dissertation on. When I came across all of the ads for enslaved cooks, I had a million questions. Yeah. And then it was nice, too, because I used my culinary training in the archives by looking at old cookbooks. And something that I really enjoyed doing was, you know, you get your white gloves on and you're in the Virginia Historical Society and everything's all precious. And you get this cookbook that still smells like smoke, right? It has this, like, a very different funk than the diaries and things have because it was in the kitchen. And just like you would do if you got your grandma's church cookbook, you let the thing open the way it opens. And the dirtiest pages and the pages that it naturally opened to were the ones that were used over and over and over again. So I used very pragmatic, very common sense, you know, um, ideas to think about the ways in which food was prepared and also chosen out of these cookbooks. Does it strike you that in some ways we're recovering some of the best parts of this food culture? I think that we are, um, but it's at the same time that we're still continually ignoring the history of enslaved people. And so, again, you know, trying to marry those two things is really important. I found that my work looking at enslaved cooks in these kitchens is kind of a gateway drug for people to talk about slavery. Right. Because most folks won't come to a lecture on slavery, but they'll come to a lecture about food because everybody loves food, because there's a food network, because people are obsessed with it. Right. Um, when people come and listen to me speak, they very quickly realize that I'm talking about labor, that I'm talking about chattel slavery. I'm talking about abuse, the subversive roles of these enslaved cooks, and then, of course, the art that they produced. But it's all one and the same. And you cannot tease those out. And, you know, if you go to plantation museums today, and this has been the case for generations, you hear about the mistress cooking the food. You hear about this very sanitized version of history when, in fact, you know, if you look closer or just open your eyes a little bit, you realize very quickly that it's more nuanced than that. It's a lot more complicated. Kelly Fanto Dietz is the author of Bound to the Fire, How Virginia's Enslaved Cooks Helped Invent American Cuisine. Earlier, we heard from Katrina Wester, a historian at American University. 